All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for bringing us together this morning as family. Thank you for giving us this time, this precious moment in time to fellowship together this way, to break bread together, the very bread of life, Father. Thank you for truth that sets us free. We do pray for those in the congregation that can't be with us here this morning, Father, that you heal them or bring them back to us in your good timing, of course. We pray for those that are still lost in this world without hope, that they be humbled and receive saving faith before it's too late. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to cancel out that debt against us and to make a morning like this one just a time to sit back and enjoy life, Father. Thank you. We do just ask for your blessings on this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Okay, part 42 of Proverbs 17, Wisdom. We began on Thursday with some thoughts on this upcoming holiday season. Uh, it's right upon us, right? Thanksgiving's right around the corner, and then Christmas is a late Thanksgiving this year, I think, right? And so Christmas is like, boom, it's right there, right around the corner. Uh, if we think about Thanksgiving, it's true. We ought to be thankful for all that he's done for us. That should be the root of our thanksgiving. Hence, this week's blog, there's just so much to be thankful for. At the center of those concentric circles, hopefully you read it or listened to it or both, at the center is our love and our adoration for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So hopefully you have um, read that and hopefully you understand what the Spirit's saying there. Just, there's just so much to be grateful for. Amen? It really is. I mean, we, I know when everybody's like, oh, yeah, yeah. But there's the practical side of it. It's like, yeah, you know it's true. You nod your head on a Sunday morning in a chapel. But then you have to ask yourself, when I go back home, does that gratitude cling to me? Is it consistent at home, um, at work, throughout my days, throughout my life? Am I filled with gratitude or do I get familiar. Uh, Tammy and I were just talking about that last night about how, um, you know, when we first moved to that house, it was um, such a blessing and um, just so happy to have a home, you know, a place to live, a place to call home. Um, you know, it was, it's just a super blessing. And then how long did that last? For it was, oh, well, I'd really like some new countertops. Oh, I'd really like a new shower head. Oh, I'd like our driveway to be paved. Oh, <laughs> right? And it was just, all of a sudden, it, it goes from something beautiful, a grace gift from God, to something to complain about. How does that even happen? Right? Some of you could look at your own marriages. You were so psyched on the day you got married, then what happened? I don't know. I'm not saying that happens. Everybody's silent on that one. See that? Everybody's like, <laughs> nope, not me. Right? Or your car, or your, I don't know, your children. You know, whatever that thing is that, you know, how about this church? How about that? Amen? 
How about the church? Remember how excited everybody was when we got this church and it just fell into place? And we were like, oh, man, we got a whole, we got a place to call our own now. We got this beautiful place in Dighton, right? Blah, blah, blah. Then what? I don't know. Where's, why is there so many holes in the audience? What happened? What happened to all the gratitude? What happened? You know what I'm getting at? Like, it, everybody starts looking at, oh, uh, uh. You know, it's, oh, it's work. I got to get out of bed in the morning. I got to, you know, I got to, oh, I got to drive all the way to, ch- oh. Right? All that kind of stuff. It's just, I don't know. We just get so familiar. Anyways, the truth is that we have so much to be thankful for. And this is why the Bible reminds us the way it does. Go to Colossians 3, verse 12. Colossians 3, verse 12. So much to be grateful for. And in all fairness, one thing should cover, cover it all. The fact that we've been saved. The fact that we don't have to spend eternity away from God in the lake of fire. How about that? That one thing should cover every other possible murmur or complaint or suffering or whatever. Right? I mean, come on. We've been plucked out of the snatch, the, the throes of death. Have we become so familiar? I guess. Colossians 3.12. Put on then... Um, I did look at this before class in the Greek. It is that Greek word in duo. It's the um, middle imperative, which means that you do something and the result, the, act, the result of the activity affects you as well. The imperative means it's a command. So put on. That's the command. Put it on. It's for your own benefit. That's what the middle means, basically. Do this thing for yourself. For your benefit. And by the way, it's a command. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. Some of you think about Thanksgiving, you're like, ugh. Right? Ugh, now I gotta bear through this. Bearing with one another and, if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Remember that this holiday season. How about that? Forgive. And I know some of you are like, well, I've forgiven, but the person on the other side of the fence, they're just stubborn jackasses. They won't forgive. Let it be. Let it be. That's their own detriment. That's their own misery. An unforgiving person is nothing more than someone who's trying to control you. Right? Trying to control the situation. I've taught you this. And that's to their own misery. You sleep well at night. You do whatever you can to be at peace. To spread peace. You forgive. Remembering that you were forgiven. Verse 14 And above all these, put on, same command again, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And look what happens. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, 
And what? Be thankful. Be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Sing for joy for crying out loud. Honestly, you've got so much to be grateful for. Stop perseverating on the things you cannot control, first of all. There's a lot of that going along right now, especially with, uh, right? Just everything. <laughs> just, just 2020 is like, jeez, right? Put it on a rocket and you shoot it up in the air and let it blow up. There's a lot of stuff we're dealing with, right? But so what? Stop focusing on the bad stuff. How about focusing on the good stuff? There's a whole lot of stuff to be grateful for. And that just changes everything, right? Just changes everything. Verse 17, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. In other words, just live your life in gratitude. It's not that hard, honestly. It's really not, it's, it's not hard. It's just a perspective issue. Just, you know what? He woke you up this morning and he brought you here. I mean, you're, you're alive. You've got, you know, at least one person that loves you. You know what I'm saying? Outside of God. I mean, I do. I mean, kind of. <laughs> Sounds good on a Sunday morning. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Come on. <laughs> Seems like the right thing to say. Anyways, you know what I'm saying? Like, come on. You woke up. You get so much to be grateful for. Again, the Bible often speaks of Thanksgiving for a reason. Um, and in all fairness, we really shouldn't need a man-made holiday to remind us. We shouldn't need Thanksgiving to remind us of Thanksgiving. Of course... We'll use it as a reminder, as the impetus for thinking this way, but we shouldn't need it. Then after Thanksgiving comes Christmas, of course. And when we think of Christmas, we ought to really think about the theme of the messages as of late, which is peace. When I think of Christmas, when I think of Jesus, I think of peace. Um, on Thursday, we looked at a popular Christmas song up here on the board, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And this is the first stanza, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Glory to the Newborn King, Peace on Earth and Mercy Mild, God and Sinners Reconciled. So that's the miracle of salvation, that we're reconciled. Um, for while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's Romans 5.8, I believe. Right? And so, how about that? How about that for a Christmas celebration? And then towards the end of the song, up here on the board, Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. The Prince of Peace. Go to Isaiah 9.6. Isaiah 9.6. We looked at this on Thursday, but it's worth a look again especially with Christmas coming upon us. We want to get situated. We want to be strong, right? A lot of momentum out there against 
celebrating Jesus and celebrating Christmas righteously. A lot of momentum against it. So it's good for us to look at Holy Scripture for the sake of setting us free. Isaiah 9, verse 6. Speaking of Jesus, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. There's where that title comes up, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteous, with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So up here in the board, we have that title, Prince of Peace. This is Jesus Christ's title, one of several. Uh, even in that passage, we saw, I think, four. It tells of the nature of his rule, that peace is the fruit of it. And this makes total sense, given peace is specifically identified as fruit of his spirit in Galatians 5.22. So again, the Spirit is just saying, we should be thinking about these things during uh, Christmas. We ought to be thinking of Christ, the Prince of Peace. He is the God of peace as well. Up here on the board, 1 Thessalonians 5.23-24 reads, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And as I mentioned on Thursday, you can visualize the God of peace saying, I want to sanctify you, which means to make you more like him, to move you towards his purposes. So if you think of that sanctification as movement, You're moving towards the God of peace, which means you're moving towards peace itself. So now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. So you have a guarantee in Holy Scripture up here on the board on the God of peace to abide in the sphere of God is to abide in peace. And that's what sanctification means. Even experientially, we experience more and more of him, therefore more and more of his peace, because he is the God of peace. So we call this realization of peace fruit of the Spirit. That's fruit. Fruit of being sanctified. Fruit of the Spirit. This fruit is made available to us experientially, when we do something. Now, this is where it gets interesting because in Thursday, we spent a little time on the idea of doing, of actually some kind of an activity that receiving grace uh, is an aggressive thing. It's not something we're lazy about up here on the board. Our job is to draw near to God. Hebrews 4.16, the Amplified Classic, let us then fearlessly and confidently and boldly draw near to the throne of grace, the throne of God's unmerited favor to us sinners, that we may receive mercy for our failures and find grace to help in good time for every need, appropriate help and well-timed help coming just when we need it. 
So that's the Amplified Classic. Let us then fearlessly and confidently and boldly draw near to the throne of grace, the throne of God's unmerited favor to our sinners, that we may receive mercy for our failures and find grace to help in good time for every need. Appropriate help and well-timed help coming just when we need it. So we developed the principle on Thursday up here on the board. When you find grace, you draw near to him. In the uh, English Standard Version, it said, draw near and you'll find grace. So when you find grace, you find peace. When you find grace, you find peace. Your life becomes a testimony to God's peace, or excuse me, God's grace, even to unbelievers. Quote, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Hebrews 12, 14. So a couple of weeks back, we started that thread on how do we see the Lord? Um, how do others see the Lord in us? Well, they see the Lord in us when we find grace and we bear fruit, such as peace. How, like we just laughed about, how does that person have so much peace in their life with everything that's going on? With all the craziness that 2020 is, how do they have peace? How are they level? How are they not flipping out like, like me and all my friends and everybody? How are they not losing their minds? How are they keeping it together? Well, it's called fruit of the Spirit. Fruit of the Spirit is peace. One of the ones even laid out in Holy Scripture is peace. So you can have peace no matter what. Think about that. You can have peace no matter what. Paul even wrote about that, right? I can go with or without. It doesn't matter. I know how to get along. So the question on the table then is, is this a passive exercise? In other words, if we're called to do something, anytime you think about doing something, well, it implies that you have a part in it. You know, we just saw commands. You got to do something in duo, put on. You got to do something for your own benefit. That's what the middle voice means. And the imperative, again, means it's a command. So you got to do something for yourself. You have a part in this. Is this a passive exercise then? No, not according to Holy Scripture. Not according to Holy Scripture. Again, nowhere in the Bible does it say that grace is easy. I don't like that at all. It's a misrepresentation of God's grace. Nowhere in the Bible does it ever say that grace is easy. The grace gifts from God, they are free. But it never says that they're easy. I, hold, I wrote a whole blog on this, if you remember, up here on the board, called Grace, Works, and Indifference. Grace, Works, and Indifference. Some of you might recall it was the one where multiple people were asked to walk to a well where there was a box with $10 million in it. I don't know if you remember that, but there was a well. Some people came from... A short distance, maybe a hundred yards or something like that. And some people had to come across the country to the same well with the $10 million box with their name on it. The question was, did the work it took to get to the well change the value of the grace gift in the well? No. No. The grace gift is still the same. It still has the same value for everyone. 
So it's not about getting there. It's about what the grace gift is. And it doesn't even mean that there's not work to get there. It just means the grace gift is free. And that's how you have to think about any grace gift from God. That you actually have a part in it. Did you benefit when you got to the well? I mean, 10 million bucks is, yeah, hey, it's a good coin, right? You certainly got a gift and it was free. He said, go in that well over there and you can get it. Go across the, I bet you any one of you, you had faith in the teller. Hey, if you go to California by the end of the week, there's a $10 million check and a safety deposit box. Here's the key. Most of you be on a flight. You don't care about COVID. You don't care about nothing. What? <laughs> right? Probably drive there. It'd be like a cannonball run or whatever that thing was, right? People are like, woo, 10 million bucks. Right? Whatever. And, you know, I'm, now I'm thinking about the parable of the 11th hour, you know, where then you get there and you're like, you get your 10 million bucks. And some dude only had to walk across the street to get his 10 million bucks. And what do you do? You pervert the whole thing. Well, did he get to save 10 million bucks? I had to go flying across the... Are you serious? That's how we are, right? All of a sudden, it's like, oh, I had to work. I had to go across the country to get my 10 million bucks. I should get more. Oh, my goodness. But that was the blog in a nutshell. The question was, again, did the work it took to get to the well change the value of the grace gift? The answer is no. The point of the blog is simple. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that grace is easy. That receiving a grace gift is necessarily passive or a call to laziness. I mean, some of you, I mean, uh, Billy and Brenda, uh, Tom, I think you guys, it's like an hour drive, right? It's an hour to drive here. Some of you like down the street and like, eh. Right? Is the gift any different for them than it is for... No, it's the same message for them. Right? Nowhere in the Bible does it say that grace is easy, but it does say that we have a part in it, a very active part in it. And that part is commanded in the Bible. We might level set our own expectations with the words of Jesus. Go to Luke 13, 24. Luke 13, 24. If you don't believe the bald guy, okay, then maybe you'll believe your Lord. Luke 13, 24. Well, many of you, it's red letters, right? Luke 13, 24. What's the first word? Strive. Remember the Greek word agonizomai, where you get the, the English word agonize. Okay? Agonize. It has a, a wrestler's connotation. You're wrestling. Agonize, struggle, wrestle, uh, combat, contend as an athlete. That's what's buried into that word for strive. To enter through the narrow door, or as he's speaking of salvation proper here, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Huh. Will not be able. The writer of Hebrews speaks of this activity of striving as well. Go to Hebrews 4.11, where we see the Greek word spudazo. 
Hebrews 4.11, we're just establishing a very basic fact about receiving grace. That while the gift itself, the, you know, the, the value of, the, of the, uh, the gift in the well, so to speak, is free, getting there requires something from you. Hebrews 4.11, let us therefore strive, spudazzo, earnestly, diligently, bent upon, strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Let us strive to enter that rest. Let us strive to find peace. Let us strive to draw near to God, to the throne of grace so that we might find grace in time of need. Let us strive to do these things. If we want peace, we must go boldly to the throne of grace. However, contrary to contemporary Christian, uh, Christian teaching, we actually must strive for it. And here's the point that we've been developing over the last few messages Humility is aggressive. And again, this, this sounds like an oxymoron, right? Because everybody thinks humility, oh shucks. That's bad doctrine. That's bad thinking. That's not biblical thinking. Humility is actually aggressive. When's the last time you saw, okay, so remember agonismi. There's a wrestler, uh, it's combat, wrestling, athletic connotation. When's the last time you saw a wrestler lay on the, on, the, on the mat and win? When's the last time you saw a wrestler just be lazy and lay there and win the match? Like never. I mean, that's the whole point. So why do you think Jesus used the word agonismi when he wanted to describe receiving the ultimate form of grace unto salvation? Was it a mistake? Was he just being, you know, like, oh, I guess that's a good word. No. No, very specifically placed in Holy Scripture. And so we have to accept it as doctrine, as truth, as the word of truth. Was it because Jesus wants us to be lazy or passive about receiving this incredible grace gift? Or was he saying just the opposite? Listen to my words. In Luke 13, 24, he said, Strive to enter through the narrow gate. I mean, what do you think he was saying? As we noted in the parable of the persistent friend, Jesus puts a premium on persistence. That person got out of their house, left their house, went to their friend's house, knocked on the door, got yelled at, chastised for waking up the house, right? Kept going. That's what striving looks like. It's persistent. It's active. It's, I'm going to go do something to receive this grace. I know that I keep, if I keep asking, if I'm persistent, God says I will receive. If I knock diligently, if I seek diligently, persistently, he'll respond. That's the whole parable of the persistent friend. I'm going to go out on a limb and say there's a little labor going on there. Is that fair? 
Yeah, absolutely, it's fair. Persistence requires a certain exertion, does it not? I mean, isn't that the whole idea of persistence? There's, there's, it's harder, <laughs> it's harder to persist than it is not to persist. Does that make sense? So therefore, there's a delta between persisting and not persisting, and we call that work. There's labor involved. It's our part in receiving grace gifts from God. And that's not a religious statement at all. Because a religious person would say, you see, I'm doing this work, ain't I awesome? No, we're humbly saying, I want more grace. I'm going to go boldly. I'm going to persist. I'm going to keep asking. I'm going to go to him in prayer. I'm going to make my pathetic, lazy butt go to church and pick up the messages. I'm going to do that same thing with the blogs. I'm going to do everything I can to receive, to get to that well. Hell or high water, I'm getting to that well. You all laughed when I said it was 10 million bucks, right? Hell or high water, 10 million bucks. I bet everybody in here would somehow find their way to California. Right? But why is it not hell or high water to get the grace of God? What's more valuable, the grace of God or some money that's probably going to ruin your life because you don't have the capacity for it? What's more important? I mean, that's the thing. You'll exert, you'll exert to the nines to make money. You won't exert to the nines to get his grace. It's incredible. It's incredible uh, indictment on ourselves. To persist at something is to exert constant pressure to get it done. Whatever the object or the objective happens to be, we cannot propose that persistence and or striving is a passive affair. We just can't. It's not in the Bible, and therefore we can't adopt that as some kind of a truth. Here's an analogy up here on the board. I gave you this, and hopefully it makes sense. Aggressive humility. If you're hungry, you don't break into the bakery. That's the wrong kind of aggressiveness. Rather, you ensure you're among the first in line to receive your daily bread. That's the right kind of aggressiveness. In other words, you show up daily. You are aggressive to receive God's grace. You don't seize for self without regarding uh, or without regard for God's administrative will. I guess the analogy would be, you know, in the parable of the persistent friend, if the guy said, go away, and he just broke the door down and said, well, if you're not going to give me, I'm going to steal it from you. I'm just going to take it from you, right? No, he just kept knocking. That's aggressive humility. So I hope that makes sense. In God's economy, grace, as we know, is the currency. Again, this gets interesting because the more we think about it, the more clarity we get, but it requires a little concentration. So if we step back and we say, okay, so we're talking about receiving some kind of an exchange. We're talking about, you know, striving in this or for this exchange to actually happen one exchange linked to another exchange linked to another exchange, right? I mean, because that, you know, that the friend of the persistent friend somehow was, had bread or had food. Uh, you know, well, they got that from somewhere, and then somewhere before that, someone, you know, and there's this whole economy, right? In an economy, there's just, economy is just a bunch of transactions. It's transactionless. It's, I want more grace. I want... I want to receive grace. 
Well, the last time I checked, God doesn't come down in a little basket and go, here you go. Typically, there's other human beings involved. So we receive grace from instruments of righteousness. We receive grace from someone else. And then as I've taught you so many times, we don't hog it. We don't hoard it for ourselves. We turn around and we uh, overflow, right? Our grace overflows into the laps of someone else. And then so on and so forth. And that's when the economy starts to shape up. You say, oh, I get it. Grace just goes from one person to the next. Yeah, that's what an economy is. It's a bunch of little transactions linked together in sort of a circle. And it just, you know, that's how it goes. So in God's economy, grace is the currency. That's the thing, right? Grace is the currency. So if peace is to be received, it has to be by the grace of God. God says that humility is the key to receiving grace. Go to 1 Peter 5, 5. 1 Peter 5, verse 5. And that's all the Spirit's been teaching us, folks. And tell me it's not beautiful. Tell me it's not magnificent. We don't even have to talk about the, what the world considers currency, which is creature credit. We don't even have to think about that stuff. It's beautiful. You're ejected from that system of thinking and you're set free. Because no longer is it about you. It's like someone wrote to me, I think it was yesterday or this morning even. It's about you actually being able to grace somebody else out. Right? Your, 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 your perspective changes. In, when your perspective changes, even something as intimate as your prayer life changes. And you find yourself not praying for self all the time, but actually praying to be used for the sake of others. And you can automatically, you can immediately see, if you pray for self, what happens to the economy? It goes, comes to a screeching halt because everybody's doing this. If you stop praying for and looking for ways to bless other people out, to be used for the sake of other people, all of a sudden you can see the, the machinery starts going, oh, I see how it's going. The machinery starts moving, right? Now everybody's doing grace and everybody out, and everybody's doing for the next, you know, and it's all of a sudden the economy starts moving, and it becomes beautiful, and it becomes fluid. That's God's economy, and that's what he wants. First Peter 5, 5, likewise you who are younger, be subject to the elders, clothe yourselves. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility. That's the middle imperative again, FYI. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Up here on the board, clothe yourselves from echo boomai means to put on oneself as a garment refers to the white scarf or apron uh, of slaves which was fastened to the girdle of the vest. For example, gird yourselves with humility as your servile garb. By putting on humility, show your subjection to one another. Do this thing. In other words, I am, you know, the Bible says, I don't want to digress, but the Bible says we're, in, we're slaves for each other. Like we serve each other. I taught that maybe six months ago. We, we, we serve each other. And when we do that, you can see the economy going again. If everybody thought that way, I wouldn't have to worry about tomorrow because I would just know that God's grace would fill my cup up. 
and I would know that it would be coming from another person who has the same attitude I have when I give to the next person. And so there's this beautiful thing that happens. When we all decide to clothe ourselves with humility, we start living for others instead of living for self. That's a beautiful thing. Again, the Greek word is in the middle imperative, which means it's a command to do something where we are personally involved. In this case, it's clothe yourselves. Again, look at verse 5. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So there's activity in view here. There's activity. You still have to get dressed. You have a part in this thing. You're not passive. You don't sit there while the rest of God's economy circles around you. Right? Oops, I went the wrong way. You have to get dressed in God's garments, not your own. Up here on the board, getting dressed. To reject God's grace is to choose to clothe yourself in self-righteousness. The result of striving outside of God's economy, that's to your own exhaustion. Again, to reject God's grace is to choose to clothe yourself in self-righteousness. The result is striving outside of God's economy to your own exhaustion. So that brought up another parable we studied on Thursday, namely the parable of the wedding feast. Let's go there quickly. We're going to jump forward for the sake of time. Though. Go to Matthew 22.10. Matthew 22.10. So with all this talk about clothing ourselves, putting on the Lord Jesus Christ, putting on righteousness, being an instrument of righteousness, all of this talk, Jesus told another parable, the parable of the wedding feast. We're going to jump in midstream. Matthew 22, verse 10. As he was speaking this parable, he said, And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. So the idea was that the king provided garments for everyone to attend the wedding feast. But this one person said, I'm not wearing it. I'm going to dress myself in my own garb up here on the board. False humility. The guest in Matthew 22:11 was a phony. He wanted to show up for the wedding feast. He wanted to partake in the marriage the ceremony itself, but he wanted to dress himself. He didn't want what the king provided. In other words, he didn't want grace. He rejected the idea of grace to hold on to self-righteousness. Do you see the different economy? He says, I don't want to function in the grace economy of God. I want to function in the creature credit economy of the devil. But I still want to participate because I want some of the goodies in this bag but I still want to maintain my own self-righteousness. Don't worry about me. I'll dress myself. I don't care how insulting it is to you, Mr. King. I'll dress myself, and then I'll just show up. I'll just, you know, I'll just crash the party. I don't want your grace. Mm -mm. That's a phony. He professed a desire 
to be a member of the kingdom, but refuse to accept the grace of the king. This is the root of self-righteousness, clothing oneself instead of humbly receiving God's grace. And you know the message there. Verse 12, he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. The king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot, and cast him into the outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. In other words, the, the message there is you can't, if you, if you clothe yourselves in self-righteousness and you do not receive the grace gift of God, especially for salvation, you end up in the lake of fire. God says, it's by my grace that I save, positionally or experientially. It's by my grace that I save, that I deliver, that I sanctify. If you don't want my grace, then none of that happens. All bets are off. It's done by my grace. So when you start thinking that way, you say, oh man, no wonder why I need to chase after it. No wonder why I humbly go after this. Boldly, I want more and more of this thing because I want to be more and more delivered. I want to be more and more sanctified. If I try to self-sanctify by means of my own self-righteousness, God says he's opposed to the proud. He only gives grace to the humble. The opposite of that. The one who wants to abide in God's grace economy, not Satan's where creature credit and self-righteousness reign. So the conclusion is this. Like a good father, God wants to clothe his children. I mean, they are his children after all. And so he wants to clothe us. He wants to choose the clothing and therefore gives them to us by grace. Our job is to simply take what he's given and get dressed. That's what in duo means in the original language. It's the command. Get dressed. Dress yourself. You do the activity, you also benefit. That's the middle voice. So get dressed. He says, here's the clothes. Here's the grace gift, in other words. Put it on. That's your choice. You can either reject it or accept to put it on. He's not going to force you to get dressed in the morning. So our job is to take what he's given us and get dressed the humble child says, thank you, Dad, for the clothes. And they proceed to get dressed so that the rest of the world can see how well their father takes care of them. That's the, that's the beautiful thing about it. We get dressed in his grace, and the rest of the world sees how well our Father in heaven takes care of us. Getting dressed by grace would be dawning peace. Fair enough? Like my earlier analogy, how does that person have so much peace? Again, in doing that, they bring glory to their Father. So I hope you see how this all comes together. This is what it means to live in God's economy. Up here on the board, in God's economy, grace is how we, quote, do business. That's how we, that's how we do business. It's our merchandising. It's our, it's our transactions are always by means of grace. Grace is changing hands, if you would, in the economy. Grace is free. Go to Romans 4.4. 4. Romans 4.4. 4. Grace, the gift itself. Grace is free. Romans 4, verse 4. <clears throat> 
Our job is to receive it. I taught a whole series on this years ago called Receiving Grace. Romans 4.4. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him, who has justified, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So you see the two different economies there. Paul is describing grace here. Do you understand? We don't work for grace gifts from God. We don't have anything to do, and if you read that blog, it's a wonderful blog, you should read it again, but if we don't have anything to do with the value of the gift. He said, I've put a ton of value into this gift, and you choose what it is. Salvation is the easiest one, but I put a ton of value into this gift. If you're saved, it might be something else. could be peace, contentment, that whole thing. I put a ton of value. You add no value to this thing. You had none. It's mine to give you. But let's just get this straight. The value was set from eternity past. You had nothing to the value of the gift. Okay? So in that sense, we don't put into the grace gifts from God. We do business, though, with currency that is given to us. Here's a practical example. Let me explain. God gives us patience to deal with others. Some of you are like, yeah, man, 10 years ago I had no patience. Now I, at least I got patience. Now I can survive Thanksgiving with my crazy family or something like that. I don't know. But God gave you patience to deal with others. And we express or exercise that patience with others to show God's love for them. Is exercising that patience sometimes work? Yeah. Yeah, but if now you take the perspective of the one you just showed patience to, what do they see? So you're on the other side. Now you're receiving a grace gift, something that didn't exist in you until God put it there. Fair enough? All of a sudden you have patience, you show another individual patience, turn the tables, now you're this person looking back at that grace gift you just gave them. What do they see? They see God at work in your life. They see God at work in their life through you. And that's how grace works. They receive a grace gift from you on behalf of God in the form of patience. Maybe your peace is infectious. Maybe your contentment is infectious. Maybe your happiness is infectious. Those are all grace gifts to them. This morning is a grace gift to you. Do you see it? The fact that you have a man standing as faithfully as I do is a grace gift every time I stand here. Do you understand? That's how he works. He's not, I mean, he's here with me. I'm filled with the Spirit. That's how he works. This is, this is his grace gift to you. He says, I'm going to give this thing to you. And you're going to be equipped, and then you're going to go out to your own lives. And you're going to grace out somebody else somehow from using something maybe you've learned just this morning. That's how grace works. That's how the economy works. It's beautiful. That's how grace works. It goes round and round from one person to the next, 
through vessels who function in humility. Up here on the board, Romans 6.13, the Amplified Classic reads, Do not continue offering or yielding your bodily members and faculties to sin as instruments or tools of wickedness, but offer and yield yourselves to God as though you have been raised from the dead to perpetual life and your body's members and faculties to God, presenting them as implements or instruments, depending on the translation, implements of righteousness. That's what we're commanded to do. We're supposed to, he leaves us here after salvation so that we can be implements of righteousness, so that he can grace others out through us, so that grace, the currency, goes right, you know, we're part of that machine. God gives grace so that we can give it to others. God gives grace to us so that we can give grace to others. That's what an economy is, after all. It's just a flow of currency from one person to another. On that note, Jesus gave us clear instructions on how to function in God's economy. Go to John 15, 7. John 15, verse 7. Jesus gave us instructions on how to function in this economy. I don't know. I think sometimes it just seems too simple. I think, I think people think that everything, it's almost like I think people are trained now to think that anything that's, you know, worth its salt is, I don't know, you have to work in, a diff, in the wrong way for it or it's got to be complicated, or it can't be this simple. But they're wrong. John 15, 7, If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. That's like a, that's, that's his economy in a nutshell. That's how it starts. Go humbly to him. Ask for whatever you wish. Next thing you know, you ask for something, next, someone just told me a story about that, too. I forget how it went, but ask, and the next thing you know, someone does it for you. Someone else in your life shows up out of the blue, and next thing you know, your, your prayer is answered. Well, guess what? In God's perfect timing, he sent that person to you so that you would have that thought. So that you would draw, you know, make the, the connection between the prayer you just prayed and this person doing this thing in your life. You follow? And he's glorified by it. He says, yeah, that's my finger. My fingerprints are all over that, my friend. I heard your prayer, and so I sent so-and-so. Or I had them pick up the phone. Or I had them stop by. Or I had them, I don't, whatever, whatever it was. I had them just... Tell them that, tell you they love you. I don't know. But that's how he works. Again, what does he say? He says, ask then. Ask. In my economy, that's how you get currency. You ask for it. Up here on the board. Humility is aggressive. Now you start thinking, wait a minute, so this is a blast. You mean, wait a minute, so if I really ask for something for the sake of someone else, not just me, you mean he's going to pour it into my lap so I can do that thing? Yes. Well, I want to do more of that then. 
And when you start realizing, wait a minute, this is how his economy works, so I pray for others, I live, I esteem others as more important than myself even, I start living for others, let them live for me, I start living for others, and God's going to bless me out, you got it. Next thing you know, you're on to something. Wait a minute, you're tapped into a well that never stops. It just keeps, you know, with the Beverly Hillbillies, right? It's just, right? You, you tapped a well that's like just, whoo, this is awesome. What's the key? Humility and living for others. You don't just say, well, I'm humble, so I want for me. That's false humility. That's why you don't, your prayers maybe not being answered. I don't know. But the whole idea is to be a, 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 per, a person in the economy. Because this is how God's economy... God's economy isn't stagnant. He likes flow. He likes grace to move freely. He likes to bless people out because it brings glory to Him. And if you want to play in that economy, you have to live for others. You have to receive His grace. And when you say, wait a minute, you mean I can actually, I can actually be that person? You know, let's face it. Some of the, your greatest memories with other human beings is when some other human being took the time to step out and help you out. Right? You were, at, you were down and out, and someone took the time to help you out. And it, it, they might be the, one of the greatest people in your life. You say, that person I love. For that one thing, I love them for it. You mean I can become that person for someone else? Yep. And I want to be that person. Then I definitely want to be that person because the person I'm thinking of is truly precious to me. I want to be that person for the next person. All glory be to God. Amen? That's the economy. That's the beautiful thing. And all of a sudden, your mind's off of self. It's not about, I want, I want, I want, I want, I want, right? Like, I want more, I want more. Oh, I need new countertops. I need new this. I need new haircut. I need new shoes. I need new clothes. I need new blah, blah, blah. Right? It's like, I want new hair. Whatever, right? Everything's, I want. It's like, stop. That's not humility at all. All you do is go incessantly to the throne of grace to ask for crap for yourself. And, and we're learning that that's not even how the economy of God works. It's not about gathering unto yourself. Jesus told a, a, a parable about that too, filling up barns for the sake of filling up barns. What, for yourself? What is this about? Like, what's your motivation? But nonetheless, Jesus said, ask and you shall receive. So let's reflect on this for a moment. Some of you might immediately question, you know, well, what if I ask and I don't receive? What does that mean? What if I ask and I don't receive? Well, it's a good question because minimally it leads you to seek answers. I think there's a lot of people like this go, meh. Well, I just didn't get it this time, I guess. I'll just go back tomorrow or next week when I feel like praying again. Or next month, or however, you know. You know? But if you're, if you're really intent on finding out the answer to that, then minimally, you'll seek answers. And if you're humble, you'll seek answers from your Bible. 
If you're arrogant, you won't read your Bible. You won't take in every last drop of every one of these messages. You won't read the blogs, even when your God-given pastor tells you to. You won't do any of that because you're arrogant. And yet, you have the gumption to ask, why haven't I received what I've asked for in prayer? That takes a lot of gumption, doesn't it? So this line of thinking requires us to now ponder another bit of biblical doctrine. It's a doctrine that becomes the very answer to our question that was on the table, what if I don't get what I want, right? This is at the, this is at the root of it up here on the board. Fruit. The Bible tells us that fruit is the evidence of our faith. Hey, I want peace. Lord, I want peace. But your faith sucks. You still have faith in yourself. You have more faith in self-righteousness than you do in Christ's righteousness. I've been trying to give it to you. I have a bald guy who incessantly teaches you and you don't take a darn thing from him. Or you do when you feel like, oh. He writes blogs and he says, read this blog. I wonder how many people are actually going to read that old blog I put up there. You think he's like just does that for the sake of doing it? Like, oh, isn't that great? Oh. It's like, I don't even know. I, don't, I can't remember the count, but it's at least, I want to say it's like 500 blogs maybe? Is it more? 800? Huge. I think it's like five, I want to say it's around 500 blogs. 500. That's an awful, three books that are about 800 pages each, filled with blogs. Filled. I wonder how many people read them. Honestly. That's the, that's the whole idea. Like, you, you get people pray, oh, I want peace. Who doesn't want peace? Who does? Raise your hand if you don't want peace, right? Everybody wants peace. And God says, I'm, I'm, I'm so willing to give it to you. I'm so willing to give it to you. I want you to have it because it brings glory to me. I want you to have it. I want you to be instruments of right. I want you to spread that peace in the economy. I want this thing to go, shh. I want this economy to go round and round and round. I want you to be right smack dab in the middle of it because you're going to be blessed out. Love and life. All you got to do is this. Oh, no. Scratching record. Right? I got football to watch. I got baseball to watch. I got bets to make. I got fantasy football. I got to get my hair done, my nails done, my toes done. I got to get my back cracked. I got to get my massage done. I got to go beat my kids. I got to go love my kids. I got to go swear at my wife. I got to go drink too much. I got to smoke too much. I got to do all this other stuff. I got school. I got to teach school. I got to go to school. I got to study for school. Who? I'm so tired of excuses. Amen? Everybody's got an excuse. What's your excuse? Honestly, what's your excuse? Is God dumb? He's asking you to do something that you can't do? God, that God's that kind of a God? He's a God of confusion? He's asking you to do something that you cannot do? So when you go to pray and say, I want peace, and he says, I'm trying to give it to you, but you refuse to have faith in my ways. Your faith remains in your ways. Therefore, you have none of that. There you go. That's the answer to the question. Why am I not getting what I want? 
It's your faith. You still have faith in self, in self-righteousness, in self-deliverance, in self-sanctification. Where, where do all those, which economy do those abide in? Satan's. Self, 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 self. God says grace, 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 grace. Creature credit, Christ's credit. The Bible tells us that fruit is the evidence of our faith. James 2, 14 to 20. Faith precedes fruit. In fact, it guarantees fruit. Ooh, that's kind of nice. As James wrote, without the fruit, you can say you lack faith. Dogmatically. So this answers the question on the table, well, what if I ask and I don't receive? What does that mean? Go to James 2.14. James 2.14. What if I ask and I don't receive? What does that mean? You lack faith, my friend. It's that simple. You still have faith in Satan's economy. You're still abiding in that economy. Right? A lot of people, I think, come to church and they, you know, for the moment they're in God's economy, they get it, they see the light, they taste the spirit, and then they go back to their homes and they're immediately back in Satan's economy. And it's a joke. And then they, you know, write emails and text each other and say, oh, I don't understand, I'm just suffering. You're suffering because you're arrogant. You continue to suffer because you lack faith. James 2.14 What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one, one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things they needed for the body, what good is that? So also, if faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. If someone will say, you have faith and I have works, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons believe in shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? How do we receive this faith then that produces this good fruit? You ready? My, this is my favorite Bill Johnson verse. Never forget it. For as long as I live, this, John, this will be Bill Johnson's verse. This was a lesson he taught me. One time I was like, kind of like, he said, Romans 10, 17, up here on the board. And I said, okay, Bill. <laughs> he got so excited, that flap of hair started going up. I'm just kidding. Isn't that wrong to make fun of someone? Right? Lois said I could do it, so I'm good. Right? <laughs> he didn't even have it at the end. Romans 10, 17. So faith comes from hearing what? Hearing through the word of Christ. Here you go. Da -da, da -da 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 -da. You want faith? This is it. I preach it every Sunday and Thursday. I write about it every, what, Friday, Saturday, whenever you read the blog. You got every day. Hopefully, if you don't have a Bible by now, I will buy you one. That was a dumb statement, huh? So I'm like, I don't have one. If you needed one, let's put it that way. Everybody has access to the Word of God. Amen? So if you have access to the Word of God, then you have access to faith. Because that's where it comes from. Hmm. Jesus teaches us that it's the Word of God that sanctifies us. So you oh, I want that peace so bad. I want that peace so bad. And God says, well, then read your Bible. 
Go to church. Read the blogs. Spend some time with me in prayer. No, no just give me, I just, just give me a pill. I just want the quick fix, right? I, just, I, don't, I don't want to actually do middle imperative. I don't actually want to put on. I don't want to do anything. I want to be lazy. I don't want to do anything. And he says, then all bets are up. Apparently, your life is more important than the one I'm trying to give you. Jesus teaches us that it's the word of God that sanctifies us. His brother James made the same dogmatic statement of truth up here on the board, James 1, 21 to 22. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save, and it's that Greek word so-so, means to cure, heal, restore to health. Save your souls, but be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Now, before we close, well, we've got to step back. The reason for chewing up the majority of our last two messages is to prepare you. So take all of that. Last two, three messages, maybe. I, I'm not counting. All this work on the economy of God, receiving grace. Refresher course for most of us, right? But nonetheless, it's front and center. And he's been chewing up the majority of the last few messages simply for you to accept, to accept the truth about our current topic in our primary course of study, which is Proverbs 17.6, namely, family. Family. All of that was to get us back to the topic of family. Here's the principle we were given a few thir- couple Thursdays ago up here on the board on divine institutions. God is the one who created the institutions of marriage and family. Man did not. God did. He also chose to make us in his own image. So... It makes sense that since family is a big deal to God, then it's a big deal to us as well. He wants marriage and family to be a big deal to us because they're a big deal to him. Fair enough? These concepts are, what's the right word? Integral to the word of God. Integral. To God. I mean, there's a reason he says, call me father. Call me dad. Why? Because he's our father. Family's important. There's a reason why he says Christ is the head of his bride. Why? Because marriage is important to him. The concept of marriage is important to God. Not very popular in America nowadays. I don't even know if it's even a piece of paper anymore. Half the time people aren't even doing that. But these are extremely important institutions handed down from God in heaven. The creator of all things. And marriage and family are right there as integral parts of the infrastructure, the institutions are right there. Okay, And you think about God's economy, 
There are institutions that are pillars of it. Does that make sense? There are institutions that are pillars of this economy. With that said, before we run out of time, let's go back to our primary passage. Go to Proverbs 17, 6. And I'll pick a spot here. Proverbs 17, verse 6. All of that to bring us back here. Is that not awesome? Sure is. Sure is. Hard for God's economy to flow the way that he designed it when marriages and families are blowing up everywhere where the world has zero regard for marriages and families. It's hard to have and live in and abide in God's economy when everything's blowing up. When the institutions that help hold them together support the economy of God are being decimated. Proverbs 17.6, we have a nice picture of a godly family, a generational perspective. <coughs> Grandchildren are the crown of the aged, <clears throat> and the glory of children is their fathers. Up here on the board, here's what we can say. God loves godly families. You see? A lot of goodness. Grandparents love their grandkids. You know, the grandkids love their parents. You know, as the generations go, it's, it's like everybody's interlocked together the way it's supposed to be. Things function the way they're supposed to be. People aren't confused. People aren't insecure. People don't have mommy or daddy issues. People don't have... That's gone out though. In God's ordained family, the way he designed families to run, none of that stuff that sadly many of us are familiar with, viscerally so, none of that stuff exists. I mean, you might be saying, duh, right? Like, no kidding. But here's some food for thought for all of us to think about as I close. If we know, if we know God loves godly families, why are we not being more active about preserving them? If we know that God loves godly families, why are we not more active about preserving them. Are we just giving God our lip service on the topic and waiting you know, for something else to come up from the pulpit? Are we just like, yeah, 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 yeah. Or are you seriously taking a good long look at your own family, wherever you fit? Are you taking a good long look at your own family and asking, is my family godly? I know that God loves godly families. This isn't a point of indictment. It's a, it's a matter of self-examination. Am I taking the time? Am I doing what I need to be doing? Is my family godly? Am I doing all that I can to ensure that it is godly? Am I doing all that I can to ensure that it is godly? Or am I living in sin or sins plural that injure the divine institution that God has architected to bring glory to himself or am I living in sin or sins that injure the divine institution that God has architected 
to bring glory to himself? Where do we each fit on that continuum? Because up on the board, this is what we see in Holy Scripture. God loves godly families. Matter of fact, his, his, his economy of grace rides on top of these things, rides on top of divine institutions. The divine institutions are there to hold up his economy, to allow, to allow grace to flow properly, right? Without getting stuck, without being hindered by the deceitfulness of sin. While he loves the institution of family, it's true, the distinction here is that he loves godly families. Why? I'll close. Because they bring glory to him. Because they bring glory to him. A godly family, especially generations of one, brings glory to him. He says, you see? You see what my grace can do? You see when it's all held together the way I designed it before it blew up in the garden? Before Satan meddled with it? Before, you know, all that happened? You see how, how beautiful it is when I have it my way? That's what he says. That's what he's saying here. And it brings glory to him. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this wonderful opportunity to study your word. Thank you for reminding us of all the good things that you've designed for families, for our families, Father. And thank you for your patience with us as we self-examine and go back to those very places, our families, and try to do your will, because that's what's pleasing to you and brings glory to you, Father. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.